Hello, welcome to the Building Through Him podcast. I'm Mary Jo Parrish, and this episode comes from our conference speaker, Heather King. She is discussing St. Therese of Lisieux. I'm really thrilled to be here. Thank you, Mary Jo, and thank you, Lisa and Diana for picking me up and all the zillions of people that I, women that I know went into making this and I'm just thrilled to be here. I live in Tucson, Arizona now after 30 years in LA. So I've never been to Fort Wayne and I got to walk along the river yesterday and I'm going to do that tomorrow morning again. Anyway, so thank you, thank you for having me. And it's so wonderful to be here on the feast day of my dear companion, as I say, capital D, capital C, St. Therese of Lisieux. As Father said in his homily, I too feel a little bit like Therese has stalked me. I wrote a book about Therese several years ago, and I'll be signing it after. It's called Shirt of Flame, A Year with St. Therese of Lisieux. And I am a um, recovering alcoholic. I'm a convert. I came into the church in 1996, partly from getting sober and, you know, so grateful. I still am. And I gave up a career as a lawyer to become a writer. And after I converted, it turned out I was going to, I kind of began to write more or less for the church. So it's been a really uh, a beautiful and, and kind of a checkered journey. But anyway, the, the reason I hooked up with Therese was several years ago, this publisher approached me and asked if I would want to write a book about walking for a year with the spirituality of a saint, a particular saint, and I could choose the saint. And so I chose St. Therese mainly because I just knew the barest outline of her, which is probably true for many of us, but I was intrigued by the, by the odd couple pairing, because Therese was like a lifelong virgin who died at 24. You know, I had like a career in the bars. That's all I need to say about that. She came from a super Catholic family. I'm a com adult convert. Um, she lived in an obscure kind of conver uh, convent in kind of bucolic France. I lived at the time in the middle of Koreatown, Los Angeles, which is this real melting pot. So I liked the pairing, and, I, and I kind of all I knew was that she was known for saying, oh, I will shower down roses from heaven. That was her whole thing, when, you know, that her work would be done in heaven, where she would pray for souls, and, she, and hence the whole, whenever people see a rose, or as we see so many here today, beautiful, um, that's St. Therese, you know, smiling down. And, it, and it's a little bit... Corny, right? And <laughs> I come from New England. People are kind of like sarcastic and a little bit cynical. So, um, so Therese was not, would probably not have been my first choice, but I wanted to, I was intrigued. I wanted to know more about her. And after I wrote the book, I realized, oh, I didn't choose Therese. She chose me. So I just want to give a little, what I want to do today is um, I want to first, I'll, I'll give like a, just a thumbnail sketch of Therese's life, but kind of want to go through some of the paradoxes that make Therese interesting. And then I want to go through her life, focusing on some of the seminal events from her life and how there's still, her, her spirituality is so relevant today. 
And then to talk a little bit about her little way. That was the name she gave to her spirituality, the little way. She's been called by many the greatest saint of the 20th century. So there's one huge paradox right there. Little way, great saint. And also before, um, you may know, she wrote, the reason, the whole reason we know about her is because she wrote her own autobiography under orders in the Carmelite convent from her superiors, one of whom was her actual blood sister. And that's how she came to write what we now know as the story of a soul, which is Therese's spirituality. It's kind of, it's a memoir in a way. I mean, she starts at her childhood and goes up, but obviously the kind of showing the evolution of her spirituality. Okay, so just in brief, 1873 to 1897, died when she was 24, born into this super pious Catholic family. And her mother, interestingly, was the breadwinner. Mother, uh, both her parents have now been declared saints. Her mother was a lace maker, and her father was kind of this dreamy guy who would go on pilgrimages and go to her dear papa, and he would sort of be off fishing and things like that. I really identify with the father. Um, but the mother kind of, I think, kept the thing going at, like we do, and or like some of us do anyway. And then, and so, she, and they're so pious, this family, the, the parents initially proposed a celibate marriage. They, they were going to get married and not, you know, consummated. And I think it was like 10 months in and they went, their spiritual advisor was kind of like, it's okay. Like, <laughs> you, know, you know, so, so she, the mother went on to have nine kids. Four of them died in infancy, which was common in those days. And five, five so five daughters, all of whom eventually enter a cloistered convent. Four of them enter the same convent, the one that Therese was in. Therese was the youngest, by the way. And then they also had this problem child that I'm going to get back to, the middle child, Leonie. And in this otherwise kind of perfect family, they were all beautiful and well-behaved, and they said the rosary incessantly together and all of that. And Leonie was kind of had eczema and was kind of just had a not unpleasing personality, and they kind of didn't know what to do with her. And she tried to enter... As an adult, she entered the various convents like many times and and couldn't make it. And then she finally did. I'm going to talk some more about her at the end. But anyway, that was the setup. And so they're, they're super Catholic. The fam- they go to daily mass at 5 a.m. like that. I just want to say, and there's tons of books, too, if you're interested in learning about Therese. Tons of books that have been written about her. But one of my favorites is called The Hidden Face. And it's by this woman, Ida Gores, G-O with the two dots over the O, R-R-E-S. The Hidden Face. And, and Ida starts out, and she, she, she's a little bit like, what is the big, like she kind of is like, what is the big deal about Therese, right? And she says, referring, oh, Therese also, by the way, was declared a saint very soon after she died. I think they changed the rules for it. It used to be, there had to be a 50, 50 years had to pass before they would canonize you. I think they did it 12 years after or something like that. Then she's declared a doctor of the church, by the way, also. And I think that was in the 1900s. 
one of only four female doctors of the church. This is someone who had no higher education at all, didn't have a degree in theology from Notre Dame, nothing. Do you know? So it's real, she's really a remarkable soul. But anyway, so Ida Gora says, referring to the cult that grew up around Therese almost immediately after her death, Ida's kind of like, Really? Like, big deal. So Therese wrote about this time when someone splashed laundry water on her in the convent, and she had this whole interior mighty battle and and did not, like, complain that her fellow sister splashed the cold, you know. And um, so Ida Gores is like, okay, so it was cold in the convent, and someone splashed laundry water on her. And, and she says, to be sure, all saints have done little things, but none exclusively little things. So she's kind of making fun of Therese. And, and as for the story of a soul, if you've ever read it and sort of been like, again, like, I don't get it. Ida Gora says, let's be honest with ourselves. Who among us has ever read the story of a soul without being disappointed? Who among us has really liked the book spontaneously without the aid of an uneasy conscience, which leads us modestly to ascribe our discontent with this famous work to our own inferiority? Right? So if if you've ever read the story of a soul and thought, I don't get it, but it must be me, she's saying, you're in good company, right? So, and I say that because I used to call this talk rehabilitating Therese as if she needs, you know, tongue in cheek. But I think, you know, just to say, many of us have that initial, okay, she's therapy, she's little, but that is not the real Therese. So I want to talk about some of the paradoxes that make Therese interesting. You know, why is she so popular? Why is she so compelling? And she's attracted a wide variety of people from priests to atheists to skateboarders to obviously nuns and priests, but lay people all over the world, um, popes. So Therese, known for her simplicity, was in fact a woman of extraordinary complexity. And here I want to acknowledge Father Ron Rollheiser, who some of you may know, he's a among other things, he has a syndicated column on spirituality. He wrote a couple of papers on Therese that were very uh, helpful to me. So some of the complexities include the treasured infant whose childhood was marked by profound abandonment. She was, Therese's mother, beloved mother, died when she was four and a half of breast cancer. And before that, she was far, because she was sickly and they were afraid she'd die. So even her first year, she was farmed out to a wet nurse who, so there was another attachment, abandonment. But then her mother dies when she's four and a half, huge abandonment. So the archetypal child Tinkerbell, who was also Sophia, the crone, the wise, white-haired old woman. The peasant, who was also the artist, the martyr who is detached from the world, but who also has an excessive love for family and for the beauty of this world. She's in the convent with three of her blood sisters, and she learns very early on she cannot play favorites. She has to treat them exactly as she does all the other sisters. That's a heavy duty. That's detachment, right? And the sisters, her sisters didn't like it, uh, by the way. The congenital loner who was also able to embrace the whole world. Therese was, I think, an introvert, very, very much a contemplative. The lifelong celibate who was also an ardent lover. 
the obedient child who knew when to break the rules. And I'm going to talk, as Father touched on it with her, Therese's audience with the Pope when she begged him to let her into the convent at 15. She was a very, very obedient, but when it came to her vocation, she knew when it was okay to stretch the rules. The young nun who was utterly hum humble and utterly burnt to be a saint, the saint reduced in popular piety to a shower of roses who died at 24 of complications from TB with gangrened intestines and no pain medication of any kind that wasn't the Carmelite way, crying, I love him. So that's Therese. I just think she's so, it's such a kind of romantic, uh, very compelling story to me. So anyway, so just to kind of go through her life a little bit, she's, as I said, born into this very pious family, and she's very well educated. She's pampered. They adore, she's got gold ringlets, and they all make a fuss over her, but they're also very, they don't spoil her. So she's well educated. She has like good breeding, I guess we could say, and, and raised in the faith, of course. And there's this great anecdote of her when she's very little, and her sisters present her with this little um, basket of kind of sewing trimmings and lace and things like that. And they say, you can choose one. And Therese says, I want all. She chooses all of them. And she herself, she tells a story in Story of a Soul. So she, as an adult, recognizes that this was a seminal. She gets that her heart was burning. And she's not, you know, I don't know about you, but I often do this. I think, oh, it's holy to sort of not want anything and to be like, oh, don't bother about me. I'll just take the whatever's left over. Or I don't want to, I don't want to choose anything so as not to appear greedy or so. And Therese is totally not about that. No, if you burn for Christ, you want all. So then her mother dies, as I said. And then what happens is, so she kind of chooses a second mother, as she calls her, her sister Pauline, her oldest sister. Well, pretty soon Pauline also leaves to go into the cloister at Carmel. And you can only visit, I think the family could visit for half an hour a week or something like that. So Therese is devastated. And, and then the next sister, Pauline, also enters the con. So she, so Therese, Therese's response is kind of to have a nervous breakdown. Um, and by the way, she's, this is, she's kind of a, I guess we would call it neurotic. She's very, very kind of over bonds. She says, oh, I was such a pain. You know, she would do something wrong and then she'd apologize and start crying and make it worse and then cry again like that. I told, I so identify with this. You know, this, it's really like this disguised plea, not very well disguised plea tension. So, and I want to mention here, um, Brother Joseph Schmidt, another wonderful writer on Therese, S-C-H-M-I-D-T. I think he's a Christian brother. I'm pretty sure he's still alive. I went to a retreat of his once, but he's written at least, he's written a bunch of books on Therese, but two of, one is called um, Walking the Little Way of St. Therese, and one is called Everything is Grace, 
wonderful writer, wonderful insights. And his main thesis is that the whole evolution to Reza's spirituality was through what we would today call codependence, right? Sort of overbonding, not having good boundaries, not overthinking, doing for the other person what they could do for themselves purporting to love people, but really being super, super needy and needing them to love me. I don't know if anyone identifies, but this was Therese's kind of thing. And that's how she was as a young girl. So I think she's maybe 10 or something like that. And she has this, uh, quote, neurotic illness, this kind of breakdown after I think the both of the two older sisters had left for the convent, and no one can, the doctors come in, they can't diagnose it, she's having like seizures, kind of throwing herself against the wall, she can't move, she can't speak, she's rigid, she's, and they didn't know what to do, they really, they gave her the last rites, actually, they thought she was going to die, and she is saved by looking one day at a statue of the Blessed Virgin in the corner of her room, and she saw Mary smile at her and the illness miraculously disappeared. And it's interesting because Therese was not, she never had, other than that really, um, whatever that you would call that, she was not a big like visions person. She didn't hear voices and she was very sort of down to earth. She really felt the Virgin had saved her life. And so that was that was a big deal. And, and Ida Goraz in, in The Hidden Face writes this, very deep, I think, the beautiful insight into what, what could have happened deep in Therese's soul to have affected this cure. And she says, nevertheless, we believe that a decision must have taken place deep within her. For here she was confronted with alternatives. She could release the hand of Pauline, her sister who had gone into the convent, and reach across the irrevocable gulf for the hand of the Blessed Virgin, or... And this was the other possibility. She could cling to her despair, could hold tight to her neurosis, could maintain her protests, stubbornly persist at all costs in the sinister attempt at blackmail, which this disease represented. I just think there's something, you know, that parable of the paralytic, the paralytic by the pool, he's been by the pool for 40 years, kind of whining, oh, I'd like to go in, but no one will help me. And Jesus comes along and says, do you want to be healed? And that's a question I have to very often ask myself, right? You know, when you're sort of clinging, maybe unconsciously to sort of the dark side or the pain or the wound or the obsession. Do I want to be healed? And Therese, at some level, said yes, like Mary's yes. So anyway, on she went. And so no sooner she cured of that, then she had this whole scruples nightmare that she went through. Um, and by the way, the spirituality of her day was very, very Jansenistic. So people, it was based on the wrath of God and you had to appease this vengeful God and people made these kind of OCD lists of their good deeds and their sins and like very, um, I think what we would know to be unhealthy. In fact, Jansenism has been declared a heresy, but that was a spirituality of her day. And this is within this spirituality, Therese forms some, a different, a spirituality that's very, very different. That's not, it's, it's just straight gospel, but it's, as everyone, all the commentators say, it's, it's ancient, but it's new in a way, partly because it's so simple. But anyway, but then Therese, she's, I think, 14, 13, 
And she has really the seminal event of her life. As she says, the entry into the third part of her spirituality. And this is the Christmas conversion. I mean, I think we're all kind of dazzled by big, right, visions and apparitions. and so. But Therese really got that the kingdom of God is like yeast all through the loaf. And often, often the thing, the truly cataclysmic movements in our soul take place in ways that are almost undetectable from the outside. And you have to really be paying attention to sort of know, oh, that was a moment, you know. For me, it was having the obsession to drink removed at rehab, you know, decades ago. All three of the older sisters are gone. It's Christmas Eve, it's 1887, I think, and Therese and her next oldest sister, Celine, and her father are the ones who are left. They go to Christmas, uh, midnight mass, and they come home, and they had this tradition of, it's kind of like we would fill our stockings, but they would leave their shoes by the side of the fireplace, and the father would fill them with candy. And the father was uncharacteristically, and Therese still left her shoes out. She's the youngest kid, and she's the only one who still does it. And her father, who's usually, he adores his little queen, as he calls her, but he's kind of cranky that night. And Therese overhears her father, her dear papa, say to Celine, oh, for heaven's sakes, isn't Therese, let's hope this is the last year, isn't Therese, get, Therese getting a little old for this? Well, Therese hears him. She's halfway up the stairs to her, her bedroom. And ordinarily, that is the kind of remark that would have sent her into a tizzy of tears and, oh, daddy, you don't love me, and I'm a bother. And, and on the instant, literally on the stairs, she said something changed in her. It was like she went from being a child to an adult. Yeah, and she just, she just turns around on the stairs. Her, her heart turns, she turns around, she marches downstairs, doesn't mention the remark, opens the presents with good cheer and thank you, thank you so much, Papa, period. And she says, on that night of light, the third period of my life began, the most beautiful of them all, the most filled with graces from heaven. I felt a great desire to work for the conversion of sinners, a desire that I had never felt so strongly. In a word, I felt charity enter my heart, the need to forget myself in order to please others. And ever afterward, I was happy." happy in spite of almost constant aridity from the moment she entered the convent. She was nine years in the convent. A frightful dark night of the soul that took place during her last agony, which really lasted over a year as she was dying of tuberculosis. And the fact that, like Christ, she sort of had no spiritual peer. Do you know, she had no one else really with whom, who really got her what she began to develop as her spirituality. So anyway, so meanwhile, she's had this vocation to enter the convent since the age of nine. She's 14, and the minimum age to enter the convent at Carmel is, I believe, 18. And she is as sure as the day she is born, she is meant to enter the Carmel, and everyone says no. The bishop says no. The vicar general says no. The parish priest says no. So she cajoles her father and Celine into going on pilgrimage to Rome, where her plan is to appeal directly to the Pope himself. And, and so 
And she's, you know, in those, well, I'm sure now too, but you go for the audience at the Pope and you're strictly instructed like 50 times, do not under any circumstances address the Pope. You kneel, you kiss his ring, and you move on, right? And so Therese gets up there and she kneels at his feet. It was his jubilee. Oh, Holy Father, in honor of your jubilee, please, please. She grasps his knees and she talks about how she looked up and he was just like doddering. He's like this really old guy. And, uh, you know, as Father said today, well, my child, he says, do what your superiors tell you. Not satisfied was the remark. Oh, most holy Father, if you were to say yes, everyone would be willing. He looks at her and finally he says, all right, all right, you will enter if it is God's will. And she's torn away sobbing because he didn't say an outright yes to the papal guard literally lift her by the arms. And I just, you know, Jesus says, be as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves. And Therese knew when to be wise, you know. And she also would put her hair up to look sort of older. I mean, she wasn't, of course, she would never be seductive, but she kind of got, hey, listen, if, like, if you can use your feminine charms to, you know, get where you get closer to Jesus or get closer to your vocation, it's okay. And I think there's something deep in that. Do you know what I mean? It's like, we're made beautiful for a reason. Yeah, it's not to be seductive and manipulative, but like what you know, put it put it all to good use. So anyway, somehow she finds her way. She enters the convent at 15, and the convent is exactly as she expected it to be. It's freezing cold in winter. They had no heat. This is Normandy. They only had one room of the whole place that was heated had a stove. The food's horrible. It's, the regimen is very, very austere and strict. Oh, and the nuns, including the mother superior, Mother de Gonzague, who was kind of this borderline personality, you know, were like, like just basically 80% completely neurotic and like, you know, and I always say, we live, don't we all live in a cloister though? Because it's kind of like the people any of us are surrounded with, right? <laughs> um, I mean, that's kind of, you know, and then us being part of it, you know? It's, it's not like, oh, there's me who's spiritually excellent surround. Um, but that was the, that was the deal. And, and it was completely as she expected it. And um, so in, and she's just follows along. She's completely obedient, but she doesn't distinguish herself really in any way. Like they see she's, she's mature and they like her, but no one's saying, oh, Therese is a saint. But while she's in there, she's a couple of, um, oh, and Therese is, she, in a way she's, she's like a perpetual teenager. She loves, if you read Story of a Soul, italics, all caps, exclamation points. It's like our um, text today. <laughs> I can't wait to see you. I mean, she has this whole evolution. She offers herself at one point as a Holocaust victim of love. And that's what she calls it. In other words, there was this uh, kind of the received spirituality of the day was you would offer yourself as a, as a victim soul, like to suffer for someone else who was in sin. And, and she's like, no, I don't want to, I want to offer myself as a victim of God's love, not of his justice, of his love. So she offers herself and she had this whole thing that she wrote it. And then she wrote the Apostles' Creed in her own blood and wore the thing next to her heart forever after. And then she comes up with, um, she had this whole, 
she's been in the convent for, for several years, but still, and she's, she knows she's in the path, but she can't, and I don't know if anyone can identify, it's like she can't find the place, though, to totally focus her whole self, you know, like a mother would do this with her husband and children, for example. That's how many of us, or, or those of us who are artists, like the art can kind of, but she couldn't find, and so she reads, and she's very little access, by the way, to any books. She reads the Gospels, and she goes to St. Paul. She finds her way, and St. Paul has the whole... Oh, because Therese says, I feel the vocation of the warrior, the priest, the apostle, the doctor, the martyr. I feel within my soul the courage of the crusader, the papal guard, and I would want to die on the field of battle in defense of the church. I mean, this is what's going on in her heart, right? And so she finally comes to St. Paul, and, she, and the whole members of oh, the feet do this and the head do that. And, and she figures out, she says, at last she had rest. Considering the mystical body of the church, I had not recognized myself in any of the members described by St. Paul, or rather I desired to see myself in them all. Charity gave me the key to my vocation. I understood that if the church had a body composed of different members, the most necessary and most noble of all could not be lacking to it. And so I understood that the church had a heart and that this heart was burning with love. I understood it was love alone that made the church members act. And then in the excess of my delirious joy, I cried out, Oh, Jesus, my love, my vocation, at last I have found it. My vocation is love. <laughs> it's so beautiful. And I think, you know, for me, one of the things that says is, if my vocation is love, if our vocation is love, we don't need a special charism. You know, we were talking at my table beforehand about, you know, some of us are organizers and some of us are not organizers. Some of us are extroverts and some of us like to be alone watching the birds and with our books. And you don't need to have a special talent. Therese certainly didn't. She didn't found a bunch of convents or mon she didn't found an order like so many of those wonderful religious women wasn't a mother, obviously, wasn't, didn't distinguish herself in the convent, but her vocation was love. So Therese says, whoever we are, whatever our age, demographic, or station in life, we can go about our day with our vocation as love. And she has this great quote, to pick up a pin, P-I-N, a little straight pin, for love can convert a soul. So... That helps me a lot to just, can I do my dishes with love to convert a soul? Can I brush my teeth with love? I mean, sometimes I can, sometimes I can't. But it's a beautiful way, right, to just, again, like yeast through the loaf, to bring the kingdom of God into being without even doing anything different from what we're already doing. It's an interior movement. So anyway, all through 1896 in the spring, of 1897, 
Therese's condition steadily worsens. She, she um, coughs up one night, I think it's Holy Thursday, it's the beginning of the tr- Triduum, and she coughs up, it's dark out, like this glob of something, and ever obedient, she will not turn on the, li- the lamp, light the lamp, because you're not supposed to do that at night, so she waits till the morning, the morning light. Sure enough, it's a huge glob of blood, and her first, it's his first sign of TB, and she's like deliriously joyful. That's her reaction, because she knows she's going to die, and she'll be able to join her bridegroom, Christ. But anyway, it was it was really, really gnarly, the disease. She underwent, they, she underwent all these horrible treatments. One was called point de feu, points of fire, during which her back was punctured hundreds of times with hot needles. She vomited, she suffered from fevers, almost continual pain. So this is how she goes for about a year and a half, and she undergoes this huge dark night of the soul. During it, she discovers... She kind of gives a name to this spirituality that she's been developing called the little way. And it's, it's kind of like, I'm too little to go up to Christ. So the, the elevator had been um, invented. So that gave her th- to the idea that, oh, Christ comes down to us. We don't have to go. Well, I'm too, you know, we're too weak to go up to him. He comes down to us. So, yeah, and then she, she undergoes terrible, terrible um, final agony. You can read all about it. It's very, very moving. But she dies, um, surrounded, though, by her sisters and by the mother. Is this the agony mother, she says, and then clutching her crucifix. I love him, you know, dying in agony. And her, but her whole thing was saving souls for, for Christ. And uh, Father Rollheiser says, um, has this great quote about, Therese's little way. Therese's spirituality is not so much doing little hidden things for Christ as it is noticing the unnoticed drops of blood within the body of Christ. That is noticing and valuing the unique and precious quality of other people's stories, tears, pains, and joys. So it's always other directed. It's always, oh, can I be curious about and be delighted by the other person? And I think uh, it's very easy. You know, it's kind of, oh, you know, okay, I go to Mass every Sunday, check. I put money in the basket, check. I say my rosary every day, check. But it's really kind of, when's the last time I apologized to someone? When's the last time I forgave someone? When's the last time I said, you hurt my feelings? I love you and you hurt my feelings. When's the last time we made like a boundary? You know, if you're around alcoholism, you see these hardcore mothers who have learned like, you know, for the addict kid, it's like, I love you. I'm not going to bail you out again, you know, and really leaving that is hardcore, you know, leaving God is in charge. It's like maybe the kid will die, but it's not up to me. I can't save him. If I could, I would. I can't do it. So those kinds of... Anyway, um, just a couple last things. Finally, what Therese tells us about evangelization. She is the patroness of the missions worldwide. And this is someone way before the advent of social media, for starters, right? No one knew who she was. And, and to me, this is just such a deep reflection on the fact that we don't evangelize, Christ does. And he does it by the quality of our love. Even though we may feel my love's not bearing fruit, my life isn't bearing fruit, my heart isn't bearing fruit, but 
his kingdom is not of this world. And I think Therese just shows this so beautifully. You know, her capacity to train herself not to glare at the annoying nun behind her in choir who made an unbelievably annoying sound with her rosary or to glare at the, per- at the sister who splashed you with laundry water. This is, we talk about the battleground of good and evil, but you know, in a way that's really where it takes place for most of us. It's in our daily life of, am I being passive aggressive? Am I But the last thing I want to say is to point out, and I love this coming from a family that I love and was deeply affected by alcoholism and um, may be true for some of you, even though it doesn't, this isn't directly alcoholism, but you know, let's face it, families, they're not perfect, right? Like who has a perfect family? So this is the deal with this kind of perfect family though, with all the cloistered nuns, the one, the parents have been canonized and the one other sister besides Therese who is up for canonization is Leonie, the disturbed one, the troubled one, the one who was a problem, the one who they were kind of embarrassed by, the black sheep. Here's, I wrote a piece for Magnificat about her. Therese died of TB in 1897. In 1899, at the age of 35, Leonie again entered. She'd been in again the monastery, the visitation at Cannes. Anyway, she stayed there for 41 years, and she totally followed like her, her little sister Therese's little way. She gave full honor to Therese, but she just died, lived and died in total obscurity. Then, around 1960, prayer requests began coming in to Leonie's monastery. People identified with her isolation within the family, her difficulty with her vocation, her brokenness, the life of prayer that at last allowed her to transform rather than transmit her childhood wounds. And the woman who keeps the website, Maureen O'Reardon, talks about one cannot leaf through it without moistening it with some tears in the reading of supplication of parents in suffering. I know some of you can identify, rendered powerless by the chaotic itineraries of certain of their children. And then this other biblical scholar, apropos of Leonie, says, the Christian life is not an athletic performance. The true Christian life is always a matter of poverty offered to God and transfigured by him. So I love that because I love hearing stories of people who pray for 25 years and then the person's converted or the person is healed or whatever. But but I think in a way... In a, What about when you pray for 25 years and the thing doesn't happen? I think that is, that's the cross. Do you know? It's like, I've prayed for the conversion of my seven brothers and sisters since 1996. Hasn't happened. Do you know? And I think this is the thing about prayer. You know, someone once said to Therese, what do you say to Jesus when you pray? And she thought for a minute and she said, I don't say much of anything. I just love him. And, you know, I think sometimes we pray for our own kid to get sober. Maybe our kid doesn't get sober, but maybe some other mother's kid gets sober. We pray to have a child. Maybe we don't have a child. Maybe some other one else gets to have a child. And it's not, oh, they get it and you don't. That, for me, is how I've been formed by 
tons and tons of prayers like not coming out the way I wanted to, but not for a second do I feel they weren't answered. So thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. And thank you to Rez, sister in Christ. <laughs> it's great to be here to honor her today. Thank you. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.